This is a HeadGum Podcast. Thanks for listening to the No Joke Podcast with Billy and Adam on the HeadGum Podcast Network. This is the show where Billy and I tackle a topic oh so loosely and discuss our previous, present, and future experience with it. Today's topic was writing sketch comedy. We hope you enjoy the No Joke Podcast. Okay, welcome back. This is the No Joke Podcast. I am Billy Scafuri. I'm Adam Lustig. And this is episode number 31. Shout out Michael Piazza. Yes. Mike Piazza. As you have always reminded me, the best shot for the Mets to get a actual Met into the Hall of Fame, like as a Met. Yes. Right? You know that he's going into the Hall of Fame. That's happening already. Him and Ken Griffey Jr. this year are the only two baseball players going into the Hall of Fame. Now, Bill, I hate to put you on blast, but you've said that if, if that ever did happen, you would go to the ceremony. With my friend Eric Rothfeld. So now we're both put on blast. You, yeah, exactly. Rothfeld, are you listening? Not only was Mike Piazza such an important New York Met. Truly. After 9-11, he hit this home run against the Braves over the center field wall that just changed everything. It's cathartic. It was a really just a huge release. So Mike, he, he dated a Playboy model. He had all of these oh, yeah, things right. where you'd be like, oh, Mike Piazza's like the coolest guy. He, could, he was the only one that could like actually successfully rock what could be called a mullet. So he rarely swung and missed at the plate. But one time he swung and missed was with his frosted tip. Oh, baby, that was ill-advised. Frosted tips were a huge <laughs> deal. Very Sugar Ray. In the early aughts. Yeah, in the late 90s, bordering on the early aughts. Piazza frosted those tips? Oh, he was the face of frosted. Oh, my God. He was bigger than Tony the Tiger. When it came to a branded stuff? Frostman, <laughs> if you were going to be a branded Frostman, it was either Tony the Tiger or Mike Piazza. Rudder up, Frosty the Snowman. Oh! Yeah, that could be it. But yeah. Piazza. And he, he'll he definitely, it's been decided, he goes in as a New York man. Yes. Oh, That God. was a big Mazel deal. He went, he, so he had a press conference where he wasn't wearing either Dodgers, Marlins, or Mets colors. And then he made his announcement, and he made it by putting on a New York Mets that's hat. That's nice. And man, that's important to the Mets fans. That's really nice. Don't you kind of like this trend in like sports now, especially with like the, the high school athletes pledging what school they're going to go to they really make a production out of like the reveal yeah. of their school choice and they also do it with a hat they do it with a hat yeah they, they put the team hat on they put on the florida state hat or the yes. miami hurricanes hat yes it's great it's kind of nice yeah so he revealed that he would go in as a met it's like it does the bachelorette do they use a hat to say like i'm going to marry joey i wish put on your joey hat do you accept this hat i do accept this hat oh that's fun the hat lorette the hat lorette. It could be like another thing where it's like a reality show and it's like a group of men competing for the love of a hat. You know, we need to mention this really quick. Yeah. We thought about doing a bachelorette episode a couple weeks back. Yes. We swung and missed, much like Mike Piazza with the frosted tips. Nice. But you were on the bachelorette, Adam. Very, very – on is relative, but I did participate in the filming of an episode of The Bachelorette. That's it's not fact. relative. You were on an episode of The Bachelorette. Yeah, it was this season, uh, and it this is JoJo. I think it's her season, and it was an episode earlier that's already aired where the guys were telling true sex stories. And okay. this is a show that both your and my mutual friend Jesse Rosen hosts here in L.A. called, uh, I think, Sunday Sex Talks. Right. That she does around town, and The Bachelorette folks tapped her to sort of 
do the storytelling her storytelling show as a group date challenge. Right. So all of the guys had to tell personal, salacious, sexy stories from their life. Right. And sort of as the guys were writing their own stories and to sort of kill time and vamp and to kind of give the audience an expectation of what these true stories are like, they had some comedian folks like you and I kind of do that. Okay. So I told uh, a story and then the bachelors came and told their story and it was um, amazing. Amazing. I, I asked you uh, for what were how you would describe that experience when yes. it was all said and done. And your word that you said was drunk. Drunk. I showed up at the call time. And this isn't any big revelation. Unreal is a show. We all know how sauced up they get the reality show competitors. But I was stunned to see it like in in real life. Show Like my call time, it was like 930 or maybe 10 a.m. And I showed up to the, uh, the to the venue where the show was. And it, the first thing they said was like, okay, great. Welcome. It's about 10 a.m. You got a couple hours to kill. Do you want a drink? And they led me back, and there were like tubs, multiple tubs of not like beer and wine, rooms, vodka, let's get you whiskey. There. Let's get you there fast. Bourbon. 10 a.m. Bourbon. 10 a.m. Mm. So that was the vibe of it. And there was just like a steady stream of alcohol all the live long day. Right. It was amazing. You wonder how many of our big famous personalities are that way because they're always drunk Yeah, on seriously. Air. Yeah. I mean, Kathy Lee, isn't she? Isn't That went from being a like... Ha ha, they imagine if they had white wine in their glasses to now it's assumed, right? I now was, it's like it is a fact. Absolutely. I was asking a UCB veteran and one of my favorite people, Jessica McKenna, this recently because she said that she was a big daytime TV fan. And I was unclear as to whether the Kathy Lee and Hoda always drunk on wine thing was like – in my mind, that was like an originated as an SNL sketch or yeah, something. Yeah, is that like a like public was, inside joke? I think right, it is. Where we've all made it but. It, they are drinking wine. Jessica now, was like, right? "No, they do. They drink wine, right? Yeah, they're like drink or like a cocktail that a chef will make them." And, and like, like we've gone to like the Today Show for like weird marketing things oh, or whatever. Right, yes, and like they're really there at five thirty in the morning. In the morning, four thirty in the morning. So she's drinking wine quite early at like ten thirty or eleven a.m. And we are okay. with And it. that's just not socially irresponsible somehow. Okay, I guess she's in the safe bubble of the Today Show. <laughs> exactly. So she can rip Zinfandel. I guess so. God bless. It's just Kathy like Lee. Part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So anyway, The Bachelorette definitely follows in the Kathleen and Hoda tradition of getting the on-camera talent as soused and liquored up as humanly possible. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it was – and maybe we'll have our mutual friend Rebecca Delgado on the show because she was there in attendance and is also a huge Bachelorette fan. So right. she can maybe speak more to that too. Right. Yeah. Um, well, we talk about drunk performances. Yes. And that is actually the exact opposite of how our sketch comedy team approached performance. Rarely drunk. Very sober. Almost yes. militaristic in the way that we approach. <laughs> It. Prudish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and we had received a lot of different emails. We often ask our listeners at home, what should we be talking about? Yep. What would you like us to try and explore, to explain? Right. And multiple people ask us to talk about writing sketch comedy. Sure. And so that's going to be the topic of today's episode. Cool. The No Joke Podcast. This one's about writing sketch comedy. Something that we have done. I mean, the Harvard Sailing Team, you and Chris sort of originated it in 2004, right. let's say. Yeah. Does that feel right? 2004 or five? I think yes. five. And before we started, I just to sort of pull back the curtain, I was like, well, Bill, I don't know. Like, I don't want to like feign expertise at writing sketch, but you brought up a good point. It's like, we've been doing this for 12 years. It's right. like, whether experts or not, it's just something we've done. So I guess that we do have some modicum of authority to speak on it. Totally. Yeah. And I think that in listening back to the podcast, some of our best episodes are the ones where we are just speaking purely from experience. Yeah, I guess you're right. To not have to search for, well, what makes this interesting or what's interesting about this? But yes. 
this is just what we've been doing. Maybe here are some expectations you can have if this is something that you want to do. Yes. Here are some landmines to look out for. Yes. You know what I mean? And, you know, SNL was a couple episodes ago. We talked about Saturday Night Live and your experience interning there. Right. And do you think that when you were growing and how you would kind of watch that as a family, as a kid, um, was that – to was it SNL that planted the seed in your mind? Like, oh, like I would maybe like to write short comedy scenes? Yeah, you know, it's weird. I never wanted to do stand-up as a kid. Right. There was just something uh – I don't know, isolating about it or just didn't exactly connect with me. Isolating. I wonder if it's the fact that it's completely isolating. That's probably a start, <laughs> a start there. Um, but I didn't – SNL never made me think like, yes, this is what I want to yeah. do. UCB did because it became this tangible thing where you could just start taking these classes and you started liking it. Right. I have the rare experience like we talked about on the SNL episode where I got to intern at a place where it suddenly became real. That's amazing. And you can actually see what all of these people's paths were. To, and how they got to SNL. Yeah. S simultaneously, for me personally, as a person who hadn't been writing yet at that time, the more interesting thing was reading their scripts oh, that's every cool. Tuesday night sure. and trying to understand the formulas, the ways that these scripts work, what makes them funny, yeah. what makes them different, you know, what, what, what gives each person their own personal style. And that's where I learned, oh, I want to do this because now I've studied it. That's for a really year. cool. You Were know? you able even at that time to parse out like, oh, my taste is more like this sketch that I just yeah. read than that? Yeah. You were so, able to sort of identify who you're – I mean, this is like such a ridiculous name drop, but these were truly the people in the office. It's Saturday Night Live. Tina Fey's scripts, you know, they'd be six pages long, but oh, they, huh? were, they were scientific. Like once – if you understood the joke, and we should probably – and we'll touch on how we do it too. You understood the joke of what was going to be funny about this sketch within the first five lines. Right. You immediately knew what was funny about what was happening here, and her ability to heighten – was just unparalleled. She's a wizard, huh? Just amazing. And then Fred Armisen was a completely different way, whereas if Tina Fey was very formulaic and scientific, and if this happens, then this must happen, you know, kind of logic-based yep. comedy, Fred Armisen's would just surprise you. It, it, was, it was illogical, and that's what made it so fun. Just unexpected. Yeah. Yes. They say at SNL, the writing staff is made up of uh, Harvard alums from the National Lampoon, like smart like guys like that. The Conan O'Brien model. Right. Right. And then UCB maniacs. Right. Who just behave behave so raucously and think so differently in almost punk rock comedy. Yeah. And those two worlds create yes. what is Saturday Night Live. And I like also like the odd writer, like a, I think Simon Rich maybe wrote for SNL for a little while, like the weird kind of like short storyist right. or like essayist that they'll also bring on to the writing staff to kind right. of really round it out. I'm talking half at my ass, obviously, but I know that, I don't know, I'm just thinking of Simon, I think he's so funny and I don't know if he was a sketch, sketch writer Per se, well, they but, take stand-ups too. Who right. No, Hannibal Burris did a, a set on That's right. like Fallon, blew up in the NBC community, yes. and the next day was offered SNL. He was taking sketch writing classes at the People's How Improv funny. Theater when he got hired for SNL. But if you have a voice, usually you can be taught how sketch comedy works yes. and then your voice is actually the most important thing I guess that's true it's like there are formulas for sketch that you can like go to the UCB or go to the pit or go to IO and kind of learn these regimented sort of general sketch strategies right. and like you're saying sort of identify the joke of the sketch right away and just make sure you heighten it and yeah. sort of cap with a button and yeah. something unexpected but it's true it all at the end of the day you can learn all of the theory and all of the sort of like you said the science the science of sketch comedy which is important to know super important uh and then at the end of the day like the x factor is your personal taste and your tone and your flavor right and fred armerson is a weirdo weirdo so right. that's what his sketches are going to be when we so snl ended for the season and i was offered my internship back and i and we mentioned this on the snl episode yes but i said no to snl because we were starting harvard sailing team yes and what was fascinating to me was that 
for a year, I was reading these scripts every single week, written by these comedy masters, but it was in the voice of SNL, right? which is like, you know, you kind of have to write for who is employing you, right. you know? There are certain parameters, like with SNL, there do need to be certain pop cultural influences that you might not be necessarily wanting to write about, but you need to figure out how. So it was fascinating for me to join Harvard Sailing Team and my voice and my strategy with writing sketches was completely born out of SNL, yeah. where we might be playing like, a, and this is like, 11 years ago trying to figure out who I am as a sketch writer, I took very broad swings, you know, where it would be kind of like we'd be parodying, you know, famous people or like big character stuff. But what we found over time was that we became our own selves. In all of our sketches, you were always Adam, I was always Billy. And we started finding these little new things that we could kind of deconstruct the SNL model with, where it's like a traditional sketch, but we kind of made it our own. Yes. And that's a very, like you said, important thing to find your voice early. Just your taste. It's so so liberating and it's so empowering to hone in on like your taste and like to really feel like you are surrounded by collaborators who share, who are aesthetic – Aesthetically simpatico and, and like really yeah. share the same taste as you. Specifically in sketch comedy yeah. too, it's like the opposite of stand-up. You need people around you. It is you. collaborative. And not just need it for the moral support, but you literally need people to be performing and reading your scripts. Yes. There's, it, it, this is a, that's a team sport. Yes. Sketch comedy is very much a team sport. Something you also touched on, I want to say in the episode uh, Utkarsh's podcast when fellow Harvard Sailing teammates Chris and Rebecca were on, I believe that you talked about one of my favorite stories about the origin of the Harvard Sailing team being you and Chris mailing sketches to each other in the mail, yes. which I just find delightful right. and super sweet. I'm like out of a Wes Anderson movie or something. When you go to NYU for four years, you usually leave with a degree and a crazy haircut, <laughs> like some sort of like overgrown vintage suit. Yes. You know? yes. Um, and it's fun and it's cool. And you become like a weirdo for a couple of years. And a deep knowledge of Jim Jarmusch movies. Yes, yes exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like things that you don't necessarily need in your professional life, but you have them now. Yeah. Well, Chris had just graduated from NYU. I hadn't. Yes. And I was more than happy to adopt certain city kid traits. Idiosyncrasies. Yes. Some sort of like cute vintage nods that we could be doing as opposed to emailing. Now I'll have a typewriter. So we would write scripts on paper. Uh. They were very bad scripts. <laughs> And we would mail them to one another, Amazing. even though we could have emailed them. Yes. Do you remember any of these early nascent sketches that you may have written that you shared with Chris or just in general? I will say yes. that I don't remember all of them, but yeah. the first round when we're like, yes, we're going to mail them. Yeah. And again, this is truly like bad sketch comedy. And in the second act, we'll discuss what probably goes into bad sketch comedy or early sketch comedy. But both of our sketches, they went in a million different directions, but both ended with the same ending from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, where our protagonists get on a blimp, uh, on a hot air balloon, and fly away to the song from Willy Wonka's Factory. <laughs> Unrelated to nothing. That's amazing. So I don't know what our sketches were necessarily about back then, but yeah. I knew they ended in the same way. Yeah. And that's wild. <laughs> it's like that theory of like if you put monkeys in a room with a typewriter and get on a long enough timeline, they'll make Hamlet. If you put Billy and Chris, no matter what rooms they're in, if you give them a hat and a paper, the characters will fly away in a hot air balloon to the music of Charlie Ch- uh, and the Willy Wonka. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie and the um, Willy Wonka. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, it's time for an act break. Okay. You mentioned the monkeys. You mentioned some monkeys. Yes. Can we play the monkeys? I love that was one of my favorite television shows ever as a child. I would watch that on Nickelodeon constantly. Hey, hey, they were the monkeys. Hey, hey, they're the monkeys. And they don't monkey around. Yes, except they do. So let's play that song. Sweet. And we'll keep monkeying around cool. in the second act when we come back. Here we come. Walking down the street. We get the funniest looks from. Everyone we meet Hey, hey, we're the monkeys 
was the monkeys not totally sure what the title of that track is maybe hey hey we're the monkeys i think that's how everyone knows <laughs> just that knows song. that yeah hey, hey they're the monkeys and they don't a monkey around i gotta tell you i miss shows i think that there is a huge gap in our contemporary television landscape of weird re- like bands like the monkeys doing weird comedy tv shows hmm. why doesn't that exist now the beatles did it with hard day's night there was like a big time in our country like the 60s and weird 70s right where these bands were transitioning into tv as themselves is is there a band that you'd like to see doing something? Well, uh, uh, I mean, like, I would love for Killer Mike and LP to have a show. Okay. And now that I say that, I am remembering that Odd Future, do, do they do kind of have that. Odd Future has, like, a weird Adult Swim sketch show. Right. But I just like the idea of, like, musical acts and musical entities just having their own weird TV shows in which they play themselves. Action Bronson has Fuck That's Delicious. That's true. That's Very true. good cooking show. A That's rapper who travels around the world and cooks for that, Vice. That is true. Right. If you had to – beyond hip-hop, if you – I mean, just because you know a little bit more about music than me. Hmm. But if there was a, is there a band now, like a contemporary band, that you would like to see have a TV show as themselves? No. No. <laughs> Maybe the Polyphonic Spree, just because there's like a hundred of them. Sure. You know what I mean? Like yeah. some novel. I'm sure there's some sort of TLC television show that covers I a commune right. of a hundred singers. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> the exactly. Polyphonic the Polyphonic show. Exactly. Um, it is now the second act of the No Joke podcast. The subject is writing sketch comedy. Yep. I think that we should go into some of the nuts and bolts uh, about, let's say that you're a new writer. Let's say that you live somewhere where there isn't necessarily an alternative comedy theater and you don't really have a place to fail, to get better at, to talk to people about, to question. Where do you – where would you start? Um, Personally, I would say that for me, I didn't have that in Long Island. Sure. And I just started writing sketches for myself and finding – 
one friend who might listen to them. I think my parents read them. Wow. For a while. You would just write them like up in your bedroom or yeah. something. Yeah. And you would be like, Mom, Dad, you want to give this a read? And, and none of them thing. none of them were good. And you know, good is relative, but I mean it. Like they were they were written in Microsoft Word and ultimately <laughs> like here's a good specific thing. They always like at some point would involve a gun or a baby. Yes. And those are two things that like weren't natural to me. Classic heightening. It's yeah. Like it's gotta end in a murder or a birth. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good piece of advice right there and then. If you're a young writer, challenge yourself to not include a gun or a baby in any of your first sketches. It's kind of tricky, isn't it? Right. Because Uh, it's true. It's like I have actually just started sort of uh, delving back into sketch. I'm going to start teaching a sketch class myself, and I've been coaching this team recently. And it is – it's like that is definitely a heightening impulse is to go right to murder. Right. It's like that's – and we did that too. A lot of the Harvard Sound Team sketches were gun-related, very gun-heavy. That's what you had to figure out. How to get a laugh. Yeah. That's an interesting thing about just like starting when you're performing a sketch comedy. Actually, that's another good piece of advice. We've done a lot of um, – we've like done a lot of college shows and afterwards we'll do Q&As with kids Some and stuff. Some workshops and stuff, yeah. And a very good piece of advice. Let's just assume for a second that you do have the community around you or you do have your five friends in high school or college who would want to rehearse these sketches or read them out loud in your basement, whatever. I think that it is crucial and this is a piece of advice we often give to not just write and rewrite these sketches over and over – Get them on their feet. So much can be revealed in the writing of it and the rhythm when it's heard out loud and you see actual three-dimensional human males and females moving throughout the space saying the words. It's it's wildly revelatory and, and illuminating that, versus like you're saying, just sitting in a room and reading it in your own head right. or just kind of reading it. And that goes a long way. I studied writing in college. Right. You studied theater. Yes. If I didn't have you guys as friends, I don't know if there's such a natural – like path for me to get these scripts up but what was great about harvard selling team was this kind of collision of talents yes and everyone's saying like well this is what i like and this is what i'm interested in and it held everyone else accountable and, and it, once you have that going once that inertia starts where everyone's just like held a little accountable we do this every tuesday night the writers will have to just start writing sketches and understanding via these performers yes. what's funny and i kind of think if in my if my memory serves me i just feel like at the nascent stages of harvard sound team it was really you and chris that were like doing the majority of the legwork in terms of like bringing in scripts like this right. is a thing i wrote right but you're right it was like the more that we did it and the more that we just saw how kind of attainable it was and how how much fun frankly we had right. getting these sketches up on their feet and you know the sketches were of varying qualities obviously but um yeah that was and i think that really inspired us all of us even though we weren't necessarily capital W writers per se right. or hadn't taken sketch writing classes necessarily. Um, the more that we just sort of by osmosis in proximity to you, Billy, mm-hmm. who did have all this training and the work ethic, I think it really sort of bled out and and we absorbed some of that. And right. We started writing ourselves. That was also another really kind of interesting choice and I think mature choice that the team made mm. where everyone, of course, could bring in a sketch. We, what, we, we rehearsed on Tuesdays and maybe Fridays and then we had a show on Friday. Yes, yes. And – Every Tuesday, anyone could bring in a sketch if they had one. But Billy and Chris, and I think you did too, had the responsibility. You had to at least bring in one. And again, it's these little deadlines that if you start putting uh, on yourself, you'll start to just have to do it. And And you'll just be getting better. It's like working out. The more you work out, the better you'll get. The more you play a sport, the more you'll understand it. The more you do anything, the more the answers will start to come to you. It is really hard to apply discipline to an artistic creative life because no – especially if you don't have a gig, if you're not going like going into an office, if you don't – aren't lucky enough to have a writing job. Right. Then it's like it's just kind of on you. It's like when and how and for how long do you want to write? It's really up to you and no one's over your shoulder and that can be really liberating. That can be really – anxiety inducing and right. I think that a way to sort of cope with that and again something I admire about you Bill 
Yes, deadlines, practical deadlines, even if it's just, and you say this a lot, even if it's just for you, even if you don't owe, you're not, you don't owe anyone a script, but you have an idea for a movie. Right. Look at your calendar, set some concrete deadlines, yeah. and do your best to stick to them. I mean, no, I agree. You know, because yeah. like, one of the trappings, I think, of being a writer is the, the fact that if there's not an outside force who requires it of you, you're always going to be second guessing yourself or rethinking what you've just written. Yes. And it took me years and years of writing to learn this lesson, which is no, you're not allowed to rewrite anything until you get to the end of your script. Oh, that's interesting. Because one can, you can write your first scene and you can be happy with it, read it back and just start changing just like a word here and there. And you've slowed down the bigger goal of what you're doing here, which is trying to get to the end. Because once you get to the end, now you have a beginning point and you have an ending point and how you get there can now be built out. You can clearer. just sort of have a bit of a wider view of this, of the entire piece, what the entire joke of the thing is or the momentum of it. That is a huge piece of advice. And I think that transcends just writing sketches. But if you really want to take writing professionally and talk about pilots and screenplays as well, your first draft is just that. It's a draft. It's a blueprint. It's a place to start. Yeah. But you need to get to the end in order to understand it's true. It's how you can fix maybe it. Maybe particularly with sketch because it is, I mean, sketch, again, traditionally, if you sort of follow the quote-unquote rules, it really is about just a, a, a climbing a ladder, whatever the joke is, and right. just sort of like taking a very uh, like ascending approach. And um, yes, it really helps to sort of see the feel the entire rhythm of the whole thing first right. before you go back and nitpick it. Right. I, I agree with you. I know that sounds kind of theoretical and abstract, but I think you're right. No, but I yeah. think that for those who have actually requested this episode, things like that really help. Yeah. Another thing that SNL sometimes gets picked on for is that they don't end their sketches. Mm. That they just, you know, and I think that there's a certain I, I think there's more reasons to why they don't like end with a joke. Yes. Um, but that's kind of for another conversation. But I think Harvard Stanley team always took the ends of our sketches we always wanted to give a final laugh yes you never wanted it to peter out yes and here's a little another trick please if people don't know how to end your sketches it's always in the beginning this is a thing reincorporation in sketch comedy and in, and in improv and in Any, life yes <laughs> yeah. anytime you can reincorporate what someone just said or something that someone might slightly remember you're a magician. Yes. People think that how did you do that? You went on this ride and we somehow ended back here. Yes. It's such a cheap trick. It's so but true. But for any sketch comedian, how did you start? What was the first action that happened on stage? Just make it happen Can again that book at the end. end of the sketch. Yeah, exactly. And more times than not, people will be Wow. It is like a magic trick. And almost like the more subtle or thrown away the references at the beginning of the sketch, Correct. when it comes back, it's magic. Correct. Yeah. It can be completely – it could be related to nothing, yeah. the first line. Yeah. Just so that the last line, it's magic. There are all these little tricks. And again, we didn't know these. You studied it in college and I studied it in SNL, but we still didn't know it yeah. until we just committed to the craft. Yeah. And now with like YouTube and Vine and all these ways where it's like you can get to the end really quickly – it's great, and it's really great to have those results, but you still need to just do it over and over and fail yes. over and over again. doesn't matter if it's on stage or on video. Yes. You need to fail a lot. I, I wonder, only because I'm not su such a voracious Vine comedian consumer, but I do wonder if the same principles apply. I mean, of course they do. These are sort of like universal comedy principles. Right. Reincorporation is always satisfying. The rule of three. Yes. And okay. like, I, I wonder to what degree these things are applied in this new media 15-second 
comedy burst world where my inclination would be to to say that maybe it's just more like character comedy on Vine because you have 15 quick seconds. Maybe. How much are you really going to reincorporate in 15 seconds? I would I'm, still say that, yeah, reincorporation might be a tough one. But, you know, I think that all of the basic principles of comedy still play out. Yes. I'm sure there's some there's always an ironic twist. There's always yes. something like where you didn't see it happening and then at the end it happens. Yes. You know what I mean? Vines are almost just like exclusively blackout sketches, which is just like a right. one joke sketch. Right. With like a, a single reveal, a single punchline, that's all. Let's talk about the value. So in the scope of an entire sketch comedy show, we'll use Harvard Sailing Team as the example because that's the group that we performed with. Yep. They w- our shows would be an hour long. Yep. Each sketch would probably be about four to five minutes unless it was a big musical number then it's maybe like six or seven that's true yes um and four minute sketches are kind of a sweet spot obviously you can usually get all you need to get out of that yeah. in four minutes but then every so often you want to just sting the audience just a little bite a little blackout sketch. yeah um adam do you want to explain i guess you just kind of did but yeah i mean to me uh like for instance we had i mean this isn't exactly a blackout sketch but we had a sketch that we did and there's a video that's called stranger dance and the way that I would largely define a blackout sketch is just a joke or right. a reveal. One joke. It's not a get, you're not playing with a get, you're not establishing a game and then heightening it with a button at the end. Yep. It's really a laugh. Right. And the sketch would then blackout and fi- be conclude right after that one laugh. Right. So we had a sketch where it was uh, a housewife cleaning up and her husband comes home from work and sort of surprises her and they have this really long, amazing dance number along the lines of like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers where they're dancing and a whole time, there's no jokes. Right. It's just like a lovely scene of this like domestic couple dancing yes. and it's fine. No laughs. And they do this really involved dance number. Our friends Clayton and Rebecca performed this so well and they would dance and it had spin moves and it was choreographed and the entire They never look each other in the eyes. They They were lost in the moment. Lost in the moment, just dancing, overcome with passion. And at the very end of the dance, as they're laughing and laughing, they finally look at each other in the eyes, and she screams, I don't know you! What are you doing here? (laughs) And he runs out. So it's just the reveal that it was not her husband. It was, in fact, an intruder. Right. So it's like, that was the joke. Right. And that was a blackout sketch. Yes. Yes. In terms of writing sketch comedy, I think that there's one of two ways you can kind of go. One is, if you don't have actors in your life if you don't necessarily have creative people in your family or you don't feel comfortable or safe necessarily sharing it yet with people around you i would assume and i would encourage you to then write in these in the snl model which is to write about pre-existing people and try and put a spin on that person or that thing that sketch in particular the stranger dance where they ended and freaked out that was another version of writing that i was lucky enough to have which is when you have a team of people around you and you know their tricks yeah if you know their bag of tricks then you can just start reverse engineering well what can i do that's true what i know about chris and rebecca is that they're great dancers unironically they love to dance right. and watching them dance together is really entertaining yes so i knew that just based on that alone if we watch them dance in this choreographed lovely way for 90 seconds all you need is the one joke exactly. so if you write a sketch like that especially like if you have a person who you know is a great character actor yes write into that play into people's skills yes. don't try and like say and also this right live in what that person provides right and our personal taste uh was like you said to lean into our natural proclivities and our natural strengths and i think you touched on this before but just the harvard sailing team's particular aesthetic did tend to be a little more minimal we weren't wearing costumes we often right. called ourselves almost always called ourselves by just our actual real names in the sketches right um and that was just sort of an aesthetic that we had cultivated half from an artistic sort of an idealistic point of view why boga i mean like just you know we like 
simplicity. We really value simplicity. But also from a practical point of view, like we didn't frankly didn't want to have to deal with a shit ton of props and costumes. And it just sort of slows down the transitions in between sketches. I was actually just saying this to the sketch group that I'm working with now that costumes are fine, like full wearing like full costumes and full props is cool and great, but ju- it, it does come at the expense of the efficiency, the time efficiency in between the sketches. Because once you start incorporating all of these items like that, suddenly if they are what's funny about the sketch, then how funny is the sketch? That's a good point. You know, if you have a big crazy wig, but the central joke of what you're trying to tell in this sketch isn't working, yes. then it's just, oh yeah, I liked when you wore that wig. Yes. And that's not why we're here. It's kind of polishing a turd a little bit. Yeah. Right. Putting Febreze on a dirty a dirty sketch. Oh. <laughs> that old expression. Yeah, yeah. But when you put Febreze on a dirty sketch? Right. Yeah. Um, we are ready for the second act break, Adam. Okay, great. Is there a song that you associate uh, with comedy? Uh, maybe it's a Mel Brooks song. Maybe it's a song that we play during Harvard Sailing Team uh, Transitions. Oh, man. Well, you would make those dynamite uh, transition songs every single time. Yeah. Uh, we had another uh, great sketch that was a funeral sketch that was a callback to a previous sketch. You would always play the song the bill withers ain't no sunshine when she's gone so that was like and we did this harvard sailing team show for so long and so frequently that like we all now kind of have like pavlovian reactions to these songs that you would include as a transition song if you hear one of these songs much like this marvin gay song on the radio i assume oh we're about to do the funeral exactly yes um so yeah let's share that super sad song yeah really somber on this the no joke podcast it's hilarious okay (laughs) we'll be right back lol ain't no sunshine when she It's not warm when she's away Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And she's always gone too long Anytime she goes away I wonder this time where she's gone Wonder if she's gone to stay. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone, and this house just ain't no home. Anytime she goes away, and I know, 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 I know. Sunshine when she's gone Only darkness every day Ain't no sunshine when she's gone It's this house just ain't no home Anytime she goes away Anytime she goes away That was Bill Withers' Ain't No Sunshine, uh, one might say the antithesis of a funny song. 
<laughs> Maybe the opposite of a comedic song. I asked you what song makes you think of comedy. Here's the saddest song I know, that one. Okay, yeah, yeah. got it. <laughs> so, uh, sorry, guys. Yeah. Grab a tissue, but we're back. It's yeah, the third exactly. Act. Yeah. We're back. Uh, um, and, I mean, speaking of musical sketch comedy, if we can just get into it for a second, mm. I'm a – not that it's sketch, but I was obviously inclined to say Weird Al Yankovic, who is a personal idol, a personal hero, and a benchmark of culture for me personally. Please go on. I love him more than anything. I would do anything for him. I would die for him. When you were raised, yes. um, at, your parents were already Weird Al fans? Big time. Okay. So they were Weird Al fans, and then they gave, they taught you about him. Big time. Got it. Yes. Um, and you went to multiple Weird Al concerts with your family. Big time. Okay. Would you guys play his albums in the living room and sing along? Big time. Okay. So, like, that was this was my kind of intro. I mean, it's not sketch comedy, but I would say one of my that was my one of my first – Obviously, my earliest comedic influences. Uh, Weird Al. Weird Al. Okay. And I'm a lifelong devotee, uh-huh. and I just think he's continues to be the greatest living American. Right. Yeah. Weird Al. I think we've talked about it on, pre- on previous episodes. You've gone to Weird Al concerts. So many. Just t- take me through the vibe. The best vibe of all time. Go on. The nerds. Uh-huh. The nerds come out at night. Okay. It's the nerds like... come out at night. <laughs> exactly. The nerds come out. Okay. Well, and again, not to be too pejorative over Weird Al's fan base, but we are super nerdy, and some of them, you could tell, it's their night out of the house that year. <laughs> so it's like, so. <laughs> and again, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not being mean. I am one of you. I yeah. Am. I hear you. We dude. are Weird Al. You're not teasing. You're explaining. Just saying. Right. It's some of their t- it's some of their night out that month slash right. year slash ever. Right. So it's an amazing array some people are super hard. i mean like i'm a hardcore fan and that i know all of his work familiar with his oeuvre what are some of the classics well i mean uh well uh fat obviously all the michael jackson parodies fat and eat it as sure. opposed to beat it of course <laughs> right um and he's got parodies forever obviously and the polka par- the polka medleys are some of my favorites where he takes a specific era like uh, punk rock or heavy metal or huh. just like whatever the popular songs du jour are right and he uh makes a huge medley in uh, the polka genre that's polka weird style that's weird super weird right um and then he would write originals that were the best i mean look we might want to have an t- entirely separate episode Okay. Dedicated to Weird Al. But what Weird Al does is not unlike the tenets of writing sketch comedy. That's true. Which is that, and it's true of most good musical comedy, which is that the first verse will come in and it'll be teasing you as to why we're here. Yes. What's funny, what's funny, what's funny. Chorus comes in. This is what's funny right Exactly. Now. This is the punchline. Exactly. He has a song called You Don't Love Me Anymore that's a perfect constructed comedy premise basically where it's like a very sweet romantic love song but but it's about how horribly abusive his girlfriend and the person that he loves is to him oh she spikes him with nails she makes him eat glass okay. but it's like sung in a, like the most delightful delicate precious love song Jeez it's, Louise. Just, it's just the juxtaposition that's so funny but he's a genius yes and i would say that that was one of my earliest influences right. in comedy well that's it you find your thing you just find the thing yeah. that makes you laugh and you're like all right now it's comedy Yes. It's going to be comedy. Yes. Fun. Yeah. And silly. And I think that was the other thing. It was like our – I think your and my and the Harvard Sailing team in general, our sensibilities definitely tend to the silly. Right. And we're not poli- we're not necessarily writing like searing political sketches or no. even anything remotely topical no. really. No. It was just little absurdities that really tickled our fancy. Yeah. And we were – you know, we, I think we mentioned this on previous podcasts, but we, when we started our first show about 11 years ago, we knew that the only people who would be coming would be our aunts and uncles and parents. So sure. we didn't want to make weird sex jokes. Yeah. And holding ourselves with those parameters moving forward really allowed us to ask ourselves what else is funny outside of shocking people with bad words. Yeah. And when you are forced at that age or at that 
beginning or that place in your creative process to to work harder immediately. Mm-hmm. No cop outs with just saying like dropping an f bomb here or just like mm-hmm. throwing a baby off stage here. Right. It gets you sharper faster. Yeah. Yeah. And I I really appreciated that as a because that was kind of a group consensus. Yeah. To say no, we are going to we're going to play it clean and see how weird we can get. Yeah, it was like a hurdle, and I think in the landscape of sketch comedy, like you're saying, I think that was a little bit anomalous because, yeah, I mean, and again, we're not we're we joke that we're prude, but of course we're not. We love filthy things and dirty scatological humor, obviously, right. just like everybody else does. Right. But yeah, as a collective, we were a little too in touch with our shame, and we knew that our parents were going to be there, and we're not going to say hand job in front of our aunt. No, it's just not going <laughs> to happen. Like it's just will never happen. Right. 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 So yeah. like, so I think that maybe sort of set us apart. But like you said, did uh, necessity being the mother of invention, it forced us to sort of expand a little bit and find other creative ways to end sketches and to heighten things yep. and to be shocking. What else is weird? Yes. Basically. And I think to your point also about playing to our strengths, we were all theater dorks, musical theater dorks. So we decided to very consciously kind of lean into that element of, of our collective personalities. This and, is what we can do. Yeah. I was a DJ leading up to that. Here's what I can contribute. I yes. can make all of the music for all of the shows. Yes. Farron is, uh, you know, she's just wired for detail. Yes. And so she will do all of the secretarial work and she will put all the work together, like all the paperwork together for everyone involved. And yes. It's really, really helpful. It's a bit like the scene in Mighty Ducks, like the assembly, like everyone has their specialty. Yes. Like the Canadian kid can skate and the one from Minnesota can, is like, is a goalie. Or and whatever. maybe if they all work together, this thing could actually be pulled off. Exactly. Um, it's the third act of the No Joke podcast. The subject today is sketch writing. Yes. Talking about the future of sketch writing for a second. Wow. It's an interesting thing for us, Adam. Yeah. We've been doing sketch comedy for 11 years. Yes. Um, I'd say the first nine of those years was very intense. Yeah. We performed weekly. We rehearsed two, three times Hyper a week. Hyper regularly. Sketch comedy was our kind of lives and careers oh, and yeah. primary relationships. Yeah. We've kind of like – I wouldn't say that we've left the realm of – expect a new video from us every week. Right. But I will say that there is that has slowed down to a certain extent as new forms of, like you yeah. mentioned, Vine and Instagram videos and yeah. Snapchat and, you know, all these other new ways of making different types of content where now how Harvard Sailing Team used to make these four and a half minute like scenes almost feels a little like antiquated. like dinosaurs now, right? Right. Who's going to watch a four and a half minute video in 2016? Nobody. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. and it, it's a fascinating thing to ask yourself, well, this is what we still do well. Yeah. And this is what we enjoy to a certain extent. If the market is not there for it anymore, yeah. but your heart still is, should you still be doing it? And we have chosen to answer that question by maintaining a live monthly show here in Los Angeles That's where we get right. to scratch this itch of like performing together because we love it so much and love each other so much. Right. And we just can't quit it. It's like we – it's too fun. It's really funny kind of like a perfect circle that Harvard Sailing Team has gone through. Yeah. We started um, without a goal. We started as a writing exercise just to keep us active after college. We started doing shows and we started performing live for a couple of years and yep. that became addictive. We yep. needed to do that a lot. We realized the value of videos and we kind of went 1A and 1B with doing a live show and making videos almost every week. We started blowing up with the videos and that kind of showed us the value of, oh, now you could do college tours because people have now found your videos and we liked making the videos. One hand really washed the other in that case. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we'd get great responses and we'd be like, well, we should probably make another one then because we knew that there was an audience for it. Right. As time passed, we kind of grew out of the videos for a second. We started having new expectations of ourselves. We wanted to learn and to begin writing pilots, to be writing screenplays, to be writing 
things that were three to four minutes long, but now we want to be 30 or 120 Something pages. A little long. longer form. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, now we maybe dance with videos every so often, but what has been the consistent is we want to keep writing live sketches. Man. Right where we started. It's like you can't, it's like that Godfather thing of like every time you think that you're out and it just like pulls you back in. Right. It's like we just can't stay away. It's too, the adrenaline is too prevalent. It's too fun. It's nice it's, for time to reveal that what you want is authentic. Yeah. You know, yeah. and like, you know, we could have quit a thousand times over. We just like doing that. Yes. I will say, do you have something you'd like well, to say? Well, I was going to say that, and again, maybe save this plug for the end, but tonight, when this comes out, will be July uh, 29th. V- this very evening, Harvard Sailing Team has a show at the Nerdist School Space, 7518 Sunset. Right. At 9.30. P.M. Please come. Okay. <laughs> we're it's talking tonight. We're talking about it. You can watch it's it. It's tonight. Right. Yeah. Um, I will say that when you start writing sketch comedy, uh, you don't necessarily know what this skill will bring you. True. Interestingly enough, I took improv classes first, and I stopped wanting to do improv because I lost – I felt like I wasn't having enough control in the scenes. Sketch comedy was a logical next place. Right. Where these scenes are as long as improv scenes, but now you have a little bit more control. But what comes after sketch comedy? You know, what tenants can you take from sketch comedy, and how can they expand you more? How can I turn this into a career? And I think, I personally believe, that what happens in a four-minute sketch also happens. The same things happen, the same beats happen in a, in a television episode. Yeah. And that if you're able to just master dialogue and to stretch scenes out a little bit more, the same amount of twists and turns that happen in a television show just happen in a much more compressed version in a sketch. I guess that's right. So I really appreciated being taught sketch comedy and how th- fast things have to be introduced, heightened, twisted, and you get out. Yep. So that now when you write a 35-page television script... You apply those principles. All the same principles, the scenes just last a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But for anybody who's saying, like, why am I writing these dumb videos now? Like, why am I writing these sketches? Because that's a great way to fast track to a career in writing television yeah, I you're just films. like kind of building these muscles and it is like there is a certain degree of uh, muscle memory to art which is also seems antithetical but it's like or sort of paradoxical art is like and writing and comedy seems like this ephemeral untouchable ungraspable thing right. that either like you have it or you don't either right. you're funny or you're not right and that isn't really the case I mean like you can't Obviously, right. you can teach yourself. You can be an autodidact and learn a craft. And just through repetition, I know this repetition. sounds so dull. You're so right, but though. just keep doing it over if you... and over again. I mean, like, is there such thing as like people are gifted? That's completely subjected. And right. yes, people are maybe some people are simply more comfortable on stage than other people. But right. in terms of writing a sketch and learning the tools and the skills and the structure and the science to writing a sketch, right? Anybody can do it. Yeah. I wonder if there's – do you have any books that you could recommend, like any books on writing? I know that for tele- – go on. No, no, you. Well, I was going to say for television, uh, for screenwriting, for films, I, I Save the Cat yep. is obviously a good yep. book. It just teaches you the cold and hard constraints of writing a film. Yeah. On page five, this must happen. On page 12, this must happen. Yes. 25, this must happen. And I get how unromantic that might seem to a writer and that we just want to deconstruct every form and like put our own personal stamp on yeah. storytelling. But you need to understand – what the construct is yeah. before you can deconstruct it and save the cat will teach you a nice clean way of writing a, a movie yeah. script there's a book that whose title is escaping my memory right now that's written by that guy mike Sachs, okay. and it's basically interviews with other comedy writers odin kirk larry david etc 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 okay and i i think that's valuable i, I found that book kind of valuable just anecdotally it's fun to sort of know how your comedy heroes have done it yeah uh, but also there's some nuggets of sort of structural wisdom in there that that's really good right um but yeah i would like watch i love watching like 
I mean, I know we both love Charlie Coffin, but like something I love to do just with a little free time, a little bit right. of a personal revelation is listen to like Charlie Kaufman speeches or video interviews with him. And right. I do think that, yes, like learning the nuts and bolts of it and going to read Save the Cat and Elephant Bucks, I think is a popular that's, one for television. Yep. I think you can do that. And also see what your favorites have done and look up interviews with the writers that you admire and the people that you look up to and whose taste you feel aligns with yours. And right. See how they did it. Yeah. You can probably Google PDFs of old SNL scripts. Now you can get right? most television scripts if you google hard enough and even just like print it out and try and break it down yeah ask yourself where did the uh, like first thing where was like the story introduced like yes. on what line were you like oh here is the problem and this is the way that we're going to travel yes now. you know i think that there's just if you do your studying and this is coming from a guy who likes to study things like yes, this you're studious that i would say that's one way of doing it just yeah. like get all the information you can try and mimic it as much as you can to yes. start don't be ashamed to just try, fail, try, fail, yes. try, fail. We love talking about how much we love failing on this podcast. So yeah. It's like we love failure. Yeah, we talked it's about so how this is so critical. <laughs> we, we, think we got the metrics back and we learned that 30% of our listeners from, are from Canada, so we're basically a Canadian yeah, podcast. Yeah, essentially we're a Canadian podcast. So depending on the day of the week, we're either a Canadian podcast or a failure podcast. A failure podcast. podcast. Right. We're your preeminent Canadian failure podcast. <laughs> right. Yeah. Most of the good comedy came from Canada. That's true. Yes, and from failure. So <laughs> – <laughs> so, so the No Joke Podcast is actually a huge joke. Yeah, that's right. Right. Yes. Um, that's it, dude. That's it, man. That another, was a really fun chat. Another one. Yeah, another one. You know, it's uh, you wish that you can be as technical as possible and drop pearls of wisdom. <sighs> Here's how you write sketch comedy. I wish I had a pearl to give you. But in retrospect, it's just surrounding yourself with people who will support your art. That's the takeaway from so many of the episodes that we've done. Yeah, and I'm sorry that this is unromantic, but just keep doing it. Yep. Never quit. Yeah. That's the advice we usually give. Once yeah. you quit, it's over. Yeah. So don't. Yep. For the No Joke Podcast, I'm Billy Scafuri. I'm Adam Lustig. We will talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening. That was a HeadGum Podcast. <laughs>